Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. My name is Julie Douglas. And uh, we have a guest for today's episode, as you probably gathered from the title. Uh, we are talking once again with Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's right, via the phone. Um, yes. <laughs> we have a bunch of questions that, that we lobbed at him, uh, mainly having to do with his wonderful book, which is called Space Chronicles. And uh, it really is a retrospective of uh, NASA and space exploration. And it is so fascinating. It has every single aspect of space that you would ever want to cram into your brain, a- including like killer asteroids and uh, whether or not aliens might exist. Um, so we had a chance to read that and then to ask some questions, and we also had a chance to um, give Dr. Tyson some of your questions yes. that you provided on Facebook. Yeah, um, you might remember uh, about a month back, maybe a little a little longer when we first learned that we were going to do this interview, I put the call out on Facebook. Uh, our Facebook uh, address, by the way, it's uh, uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, just... Type that in to Facebook and you'll find us. Uh, put the call out for questions that you guys had for uh, Dr. Tyson, and uh, we received a whole list of them. And so we went in and we picked, like, the five best and then asked as many of those as we could during the, the, the time that we had him. And really, I think some of the answers to your questions were the best. Uh, as you'll as you'll discover in this uh, this episode. Yeah, I think you guys excited his imagination. So, but first of all, I do need to mention again: this is a great book. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. For those of you who are not familiar with him, there's, and really you have no excuse not to be familiar with Neil deGrasse Tyson because he's, he's everywhere. everywhere. He is a mass communicator. He is out there as a spokesman for science. Uh, for our understanding of the cosmos, for our continued exploration uh, of, of the cosmos, and, and for just science literacy uh, in our culture, and uh, and this book is just another great example of that it's very readable. It is not a you know an, it's not a heavy heavy hard to read science book. It is a very readable uh, text that uh, that is. I mean, it even has his tweets in there, which I thought was a nice <laughs> yeah. a nice touch because he's a he's a big big time tweeter, a uh, big time Twitter user if you if you would rather, uh, and you can find him on Twitter at Neil Tyson, that's N-E-I-L-T-Y-S-O-N. Uh, follow him there. He's always uh, throwing out some some neat little tidbits about the scientific world, or he's questioning the science of a major motion picture. He, he's always a lot of fun. That's right. And uh, I think I had mentioned it, but he, he really does lay out um, some, some of the mysteries of the universe in a very elegant way, and of course with his uh, signature humor, yes. which is pretty awesome. All right. Well, that being said, let's uh, let's break into the interview itself. Uh, well, first of all, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, on our podcast, we, I mean, we're all about trying to communicate uh, science and mind-blowing topics with our listeners, and so you, you are, of course, one of our heroes, uh, so it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Now I have to live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we thought we'd just go ahead and start talking a little bit about Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier, um, the collection of essays that you have, and really addressing, I think, uh, from soup to nuts, space exploration. Um, I wanted to to talk about the political uh, parties, partisanship that, that uh, you talk about in the book, and I wanted to sort of ask you, if you thought that showing the sausage-making part of that would kind of help the public to better understand some of the challenges that face NASA in terms of budget constraints. Well, almost everything is partisan today, and except for maybe veterans' benefits, you know, some things that are sort of sacred in the budget. 
And I, I think the more people see the sausage making, the more they might become disgusted with the fact that there's sausage making at all for things that are fundamentally bipartisan or, or better yet, fundamentally nonpartisan. So to expose it, I think, is, is a good thing. Uh, not that I had any secret access to what's going on in Washington, but I offered an analysis of how progress on NASA's budget and progress in space had been um, had fallen victim to to partisan grandstanding, and uh, you know, space historically has never been partisan at all. In other words, if you liked space or you didn't like space, it was uncorrelated with whether you were left or right or Democrat or Republican or, or anything. It was just simply because you had a, an opinion. And that's a good thing about topics, I think. And it means you don't sort of ascribe to what, how other people want you to think about something. You can come up with your own views. And NASA, in a way, has transcended that. And that, that's, I think it's been one of its strong points. And in fact, most people, particularly in you know, the past 40 years or so, most people who think of America and listed things about America that they liked, most people that is around the world, NASA would be like number one on that list. Number one, right? It's not the presidents and it's not the FBI or the CIA or the military or anything. It's NASA. So what a you know what a what a, a point of diplomacy that represents when you think about it in a geopolitical way. So. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's high time that people just sat down and recognized the value of uh, projects that allow you to dream, empower you to dream about tomorrow, the value that those projects have on our ambitions, on our culture, on our educational pipeline, and, and the urge to get people interested in the STEM field, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math. Excellent. Well, Dr. Tyson, in your book you point out that uh, half a penny on the tax dollar is the total cost of all space-borne telescopes, planetary probes, the rover on Mars, the International Space Station, the space shuttle, and telescopes in orbit. You also point out that space exploration has yielded myriad indirect benefits, everything from cordless tools and fittable braces and long-distance telecommunications uh, to, to water filters. So if you had your druthers, how much more would you allocate to NASA on the tax dollar, and what might that yield in terms of uh, direct and indirect returns? Yeah, so, so that, that's, a, that's an important and excellent question, but I, I want to unpack it into sort of multiple variables that are contained within it. So, for example, uh, we could list spinoffs from NASA, direct spinoffs, and I give a list in, in the book, although I don't dwell on that list. I just offer the list, and then I keep going. Because if you went to the list of direct spinoffs, which would include temper foam and, and cordless power tools, high-torque battery-operated tools that all came from uh, pioneering efforts to enable space-walking astronauts to repair things while they're in space. You can't just look for the nearest 110-volt plug to plug in your, your tools. And, uh, you know, things like the uh, inexpensive and accurate LASIK surgery the list is long, and it's impressive, right on back to the original urge to miniaturize electronics in the first place. So that was not an interest of industry or the public. It was an interest of NASA to reduce the weight of anything you'd be launching from Earth's surface to orbit or anywhere else. And if you, if you ask your grandparents you know, what their radio looked like, they'll say it was a piece of furniture in their living room. And 
at that time, no one is thinking, gee, I want to carry that on my hip pocket. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not a thought. It didn't even occur to anybody that that's what you might do with a radio one day. So, yes, there's all of these spinoffs, no doubt about it. But if you look at the value of those spinoffs compared with, in other words, the, the, the net sales, let's say, of all those spinoffs and compare it to NASA's annual budget, it doesn't compare. It's smaller than NASA's annual budget. So you can't justify NASA's budget based on the economic value of spinoffs. It just doesn't work. So the only time I ever talk about it is when someone else brings it up. And it's only in the book because I have some obligation just to show all the force that NASA represents. The real impact of NASA has to do with its influence on a culture and the urge to embrace innovations in science and technology because the benefit, the, the discoveries of science and technology are writ large daily in the papers when that's the activity you're engaged in. And you ask anyone who has wanted to become a scientist or an engineer, just ask them. Occasionally, it's the great science or engineering teacher in school, it's the, you know, K through 12 would be because you had a great science teacher. That's not the majority. The majority of the cases is a kid saw something in life. They were exposed to some grand vision statement that, uh, that something bigger than themselves was undertaking, right? It wasn't just some science class. It wasn't just some science kit that, that whose experiments they performed at home or in school. It was bigger than that. Uh, essentially, 100% of my generation who entered science, entered science because they saw that we were going to the moon. That, that's how old I am, by the way. <laughs> so they would not cite a science teacher. They'll cite a science teacher for helping them get along or making them appreciate it all the more, but you can't undervalue how much of a force of nature NASA is on, on the hearts and minds and the dreams of a culture. And to, to excel at NASA, you have to innovate. And when you do that in a big way, the country becomes an innovation nation. And that's, that's the real return. So the return is you want to assure your economic survival in the future because you are stimulating people to innovate. And innovations in science and technology in the 21st century are the engines of tomorrow's economy. Well, there you have it. There it is. It, you don't have to beat people over the head to try to make them interested in this stuff. You get that for free. You don't have to worry about keeping your factories here because we'll be making things that no one knows how to make yet because we'll be innovating. You don't have to worry about keeping kids interested in science because the headlines will do that. And everybody looks at the, these challenges of America falling behind as, as a series of band-aids that they need to apply and then everything is somehow fixed without looking at the root cause of all the, the lost uh, vision statements that uh, the citizenry... Um, is uh, has been has been has evaporated from our culture over the past ten and twenty years. Um, in your book, you speak about the the three factors capable of stirring human cultures to engage in mega projects. Uh, talk about war, economics, and less uh, common these days, uh, obedience to a god or some uh, some royal figure. Uh, so, does it really boil down to? to negative motivations for culture as a whole? Is it, is it, does it have to be fear or greed, do you think, to really get the mega projects such as space exploration out there? Uh, it depends on how you use the word negative, because that would value judge it. And I try not to value judge things. I just put, put it out there, and I leave the value judging to others. I would say that the greatest driver of human 
expenditure of capital, be it financial capital or human capital, is war. Now you can interpret that as defense, all right? And that's the Great Wall of China, for example, that clearly was not a military project for offense. It was a defensive military project, and that was constructed in the interest of the safety and security of its citizens. So uh, I wouldn't—you can think of it as negative because it's in response to a threat, right? And then you have economic return. Uh, that's only negative if it's sort of badly exploiting people, but in its purest form, uh, economic growth is a good thing for the world. Uh, those nations that are wealthier, they live longer and happier lives and with less disease. So economic wealth, though, while not as powerful a driver as war, is comes in a very close second. And you just look at, you know, there's Queen Isabella. She didn't say to Columbus, oh, go to the New World and come back and tell us about the botanical uh, explorations you did. And, <laughs> And, and show us the maps, and we can put it up in our library. No, it was, here's some flags. Wherever you go, put the flag, put the Spanish flag down, and you know, declare these lands for the Spanish Empire. And, by the way, try to exploit as much as you can the natural resources so that we can have uh, trade partners or we can become wealthier. And so, yes, there's a sort of a hegemonistic motive there, but at the end of the day, you know, Spain, Spain got wealthy because they valued exploration as an economic activity. Columbus, I never met the guy, but surely he did this because he, in his heart, was an explorer. And so the explorer explores, but somebody's got to write the check. And the history of this activity has demonstrated that the check writers are governments when you're exploring where no one has gone before. And private enterprise comes in later and exploits those activities in the financial interest of the nations. Yeah, so in America, a financial incentive to go into space, not because you're going to reap the benefits of spinoffs, but because an innovation nation competes economically in the 21st century. Uh, if exploration is not a good enough reason for you to do it, then do it because you don't want to die poor, or you don't want to see a future of America where we are economically weak or powerless on the world stage. I'm reminded uh, that in uh, 2011, uh, economist Paul Krugman speculated that the discovery of an impending alien attack would fix uh, all of uh, America's economic woes in about 18 months. So if, if Paul Krugman were to approach you about uh, faking such uh, a threat, what would you say? Well, I would say that there's no doubt of America's resolve when we feel threatened. I think that there's just no question about it. And because a threat transcends politics. If everyone feels threatened, then you're not going to have one person say, well, we're not threatened, if everybody feels threatened. And you have all pistons running uh, aligned in Congress, and monies get, the budgets get passed, and military investments on, flow like rivers. This is a major thesis of the book, based on my read of the history of human conduct. All I would say is, the value of these in investments not only would return in your security because you want to deflect the asteroid rather than go extinct. But also, uh, you become the kind of economy that thrives on innovation. And if those, that, that's my only point. It becomes an investment at that point. Mm -hmm. And the very question, oh, can we really afford it? Of course you can afford it because you invest it. You're investing. And you're expecting a return on that investment in the form of a wealthier nation in the decades to come. 
And by the way, that transcends timescales of quarterly reports and annual reports and congressional re-election times. So somebody needs the foresight necessary to put this into motion to assure a future stability of our nation's economy. You know, you're talking about taking the long view, and um, I can't help but think about the long view in asteroids, near-Earth objects. Um, oh, you can, huh? <laughs> you can't <laughs> help. It's not even really the long for, view. For um, decades, this has been, you know, we any astrophysicist in arm's reach could have told you all about the asteroid threat. And mm-hmm. apparently, we are, as a culture, as a world, we are feeble-minded such that we don't believe it until we it happens and then it's kind of too late it, you know it's a little you know excuse me somehow a threat isn't real unless it's staring you in the face the good thing about science is that you can predict the coming of a threat yet that's apparently not enough to trigger people's actions the good thing the, the silver lining of the Ural's meteor in Russia is that nobody died Mm-hmm. Many people injured, but nobody died. And so, therefore, if we had to be slammed by something and learn a lesson from it, it was an ideal sort of lesson because everybody just needed to get a little patched up and go on about their way, fix a few walls and windows. What a lesson that is. What a shot across the bow that was. But, again, if we were already into space, this would be a trivial extension of activities we were already engaged in. If all you're going to say now is let's go into space so that we can stop an asteroid, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. You're missing the point. That's like saying, I try to analogize it to the building of the interstate system in the country. If someone said, let's build an interstate to connect New York and Los Angeles. Well, that's useful for sure. But how about all the rest of the country? Well, how about that? How about the other cities? What Are you only going to do it to bring people from one place to another because that's all you can think of doing? when there's all the rest of the country that's, that is waiting to be explored. So I view the entire solar system as our backyard. And when you do, you know, maybe there's an asteroid miners one day and we show them our latest telescope data and they say there's an asteroid headed our way. Could you guys snare it before it puts us at risk? And they'll go ahead and snare it because they're, they know how to manipulate and maneuver and mine asteroids. The government wouldn't even have, the government would pay for that, but they wouldn't have to like launch it themselves. All right, we're just going to take one quick break, and when we come back, more questions with Neil deGrasse Tyson, including your questions. All right, we're back. Let's jump right back into the interview uh, with uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. You have a, a just a very elegant explanation of asteroids and long-period comets in your book, in Space Chronicles, and I thought it just really laid out the the, um, the reasons why we can detect some and the reasons why can, why we can't detect others. In particular, you um, talk about Apophis, which I know you've talked about before in, in the media, and how this is actually something that's very serious that we need to focus on. Um, and I thought that maybe you could talk a little bit about that um, in, in practical terms, how we confront a problem like this, an asteroid, that's in our view. And then a second part to that, I thought maybe uh, we could talk a little bit about the role of privatization of asteroid mining and how that may or may not affect uh, asteroids. Yeah, you know, if you're macho, you might say, let's, let's blow the sucker out of the sky. You know, you got nukes in the silos left over from the Cold War, put them to good use. And, you know, what I, what I say often 
and as all that I know of the American Armed Forces tells me this is true, that we're really good at blowing stuff up and less good at knowing where the pieces will fall. And that seems to have applied literally and metaphorically to our uh, military policy. We're, if we are objective to be to blow up an asteroid, I'd be concerned that the one spot that was originally targeted by this asteroid is now headed to two places instead of one. So what have you done? Um, now you have to evacuate both coasts. And, you know. So uh, there's some emerging consensus among those who have studied the problem, myself included, that the soundest way to approach this problem is through an asteroid deflection scenario. The asteroid will continue to live another day and possibly harm you in another day. But... The, the advantage of it is you get to nudge it slowly and you get to watch how effective you've been and you keep doing it until you are as effective as you need it to be. And so with Apophis, the idea of this is that when it comes very close to the Earth in 2029 that you alter its course a bit so that in its return orbit it doesn't slam into the Earth. Is that Precisely, because the later you, hit, you get to the problem the more the, the, all your capacity to solve that problem drops. Gotcha. And a lot of this is looking into the crystal ball, but, you know, there's been talk about asteroid mining and private companies taking that on because, you know, at some point it might yield some some profits, certainly not right away. Uh, The question, I think, for us is if you have so much space junk, if you have near-Earth objects in orbit and you have private companies up there now with their equipment, do they then have an obligation to help clean up space junk, to help deflect uh, near-Earth objects? From yeah, I wouldn't orbit? call it an obligation. I would just call it know-how. You know, who do you get? I mean, forgive me for referencing the movie Armageddon, <laughs> but they had a task set out in front of them in the film to bury a nuke in an asteroid because otherwise it won't blow it apart. So in the ranks of NASA, there was no one who had any experience drilling into solid rock or something hard to penetrate. And so they got Bruce Willis and his crack team of, I guess they're oil rig drillers or something. And so they had a a very specific talent set, unique to the task. So if we are busy turning the solar system into our backyard, then there will be a mining company exploiting asteroids. Uh, so we would presume that if, if asteroid mining was an activity, an economic activity, then they would know how to get to asteroids, how to mine them, how to turn them around, how to tow them from one location to another to be better suited for their access. And if you have that capability, then why wouldn't they be the ones you would task to uh, deflect an asteroid? And it becomes their asteroid, right? Oh, there's one coming our way. Why don't you just take it and mine it for all it's worth, and 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 we're done with it. But that'd be kind of cool if every asteroid that would end life on Earth simply became a source of natural resources to help life on Earth. That's the kind of thinking that goes on when you're in an innovation nation. A storm is ready to hit the coast. You know, do you run away from it and? buy up all the water from the shelves, or do you say, how can I mitigate that storm? How can I deflect that storm? How can I tap the cyclonic energy contained within it and drive the energy needs of the city that it's about to destroy? So uh, I wouldn't call it an obligation. I would just call it, yeah, of course they'll do it. 
I mean, of course. And they'll know how to. Other people will have money but not the know-how, so you pay them. I mean, it's a company, and they use their resources. You pay them to use their resources. You know, the, the post office doesn't fly their own airplanes. They pay commercial carriers to fly mail, U.S. mail, in their belly. The government has had this kind of relationship with a business forever. You know, how do we make the Jeep in, in World War II? The government gave money to Chrysler. Said Chrysler had a good design. They built the Jeep. And they still make Jeeps. And they make money off of it. That's how we're in a capitalist society. That's how, you know, that's how that's supposed to work. Obviously, the wave of public and political support for uh, space exploration has ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, but what if we had somehow maintained it at its 1969 level? How far would we be today? Oh, so at its so at the level you're talking about would be the 1966 level. Okay, that's where NASA's funding had peaked. Okay, it peaked as a percentage of the federal budget. It peaked at about four percent. In fact, there's a huge set of appendices in Space Chronicles where I plot the NASA's budget over 50 years, and uh, in there is the original founding document of NASA. Uh, NASA was founded like the same week I was born. So I feel NASA's <laughs> <laughs> pains and joys and challenges. So in there you can see the plot of, its, uh, of the budget. It's, it's a stunning difference between the commitment that we made as a nation over that period and the commitment we're making now. Now, you don't have to always keep the commitment that high if the nation gets wealthier. If the nation gets wealthier, which it has done over the decades, then your percentage could go down, yet your net money could go up. I mean, that's how that works if you're always referencing your budget as a percent of the federal budget. The, but to, give, to put some numbers on this, it was 4% in 1966 going into 1967. That was sort of the peak buildup of the Apollo program. And if we had that money now, NASA's budget would be eight times a factor of eight larger than its current value if NASA were, were appreciated at the same percent of the federal budget that it was back then. And I would claim that at, at a much lower price tag than that, you can turn the entire solar system into your backyard. You can breach a space frontier. And these are stories that the press would write about. I wanted to ask if you thought that uh, an Earth-like planet might be discovered, I don't know, in 50 years, 100 years, and do you think that it's something like citizen science that will be a part of it um, in the absence of a Sputnik moment or uh, an alien attack? The Sputnik moments and the alien attacks are the kind of forces that galvanize an entire society. But in any society, there are always people, in any wealthy society, there are always people who will spend their mental and emotional energies thinking about discovery. It's been going on, people have been doing that ever since the beginning. You know, who's the first one to leave the cave? That's somebody who wants to discover. It's an urge within us that I don't think we should stand in denial of, although many people have forgotten what it is or what it felt like to explore. Every child knows what it's like to explore. They turn over rocks and climb trees and pluck, if they're suburban, you climb trees, <laughs> you, they pluck petals off roses, jump two feet in puddles, they, you know, this is what kids do, they, they catch snowflakes in their mouths, and adults somehow lose this playful curiosity about the world around them, and all you need to do is keep it, you don't have to create it from scratch, it was already there, just find, find ways to foster it, and nurture it, and then you're, you're coming along nicely, so 
Now, the, the thrust of your question was? That I, um, I, that. I just wondered if you thought that an Earth-like planet might be discovered in the next 50 years, and do you think uh, that uh, citizen science will be a part of that, since we're somewhat hamstrung in terms of budgets to, to, to really yeah. look very hard for an Earth-like planet? Sure. Well, we already have Earth-like planets in the catalog. So the, the challenge is an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, of its host star, not too close. Otherwise, if it had liquid water, it would evaporate, and not too far because if it had liquid water, it would freeze, and that's not useful to life as we know it, which requires liquid water. So we have planets that have been discovered. There's just not many of them. There's a handful, fewer than five out of the. We're rising through a thousand exoplanets uh, that are in the catalogs today. Uh, citizen science is a is a wonderful exploitation of the internet. And we should have more of it, especially since in the astrophysics community, we are overrun with data, with scales of data that we, we simply can't analyze ourselves. And I think that's a good thing. I think there should be more of it, especially for the data-heavy fields such as my own. Uh, but that itself is not going to transform a culture. That's, going to, that's a side activity for people who already know they like science. Okay, uh, how are you doing on time? Do you have time for a, a few of the listener-submitted questions, or do you need Yeah, to... sure. i got about 15 more minutes. We're good. Okay. Well, I'm going to go through these. If, if you don't like the question, or you, you... I'll take any question you give me. Okay, all right. Uh, well, this uh, first uh, question comes from uh, a listener uh, named Mike. Mike asks, can you expound in a simple way on how dark matter and energy seem to bind and expand the matter we see as the visible universe? Uh, yeah, so if you think of mass... All right. Mass can be manifested in two ways. In one form, it is energy. In another form, it's matter. Okay? Think of, that, think of it that way. And each of those contain mass or mass equivalent. And our understanding of the universe, its beginning, its evolution, its end, sort of flows through that understanding. And you can look at how much mass there is in the universe and what it's doing to the universe. Over the years, beginning in 1936, we learned that there's more going on in the universe than just what our mass is doing. So in 1937, we discovered a, there's gravity out there that has no known point of origin. And then in uh, two, two decades ago, in the late 90s, that is, we found that there's a pressure in the vacuum of, of space that's forcing the universe to expand. So, and those are huge fractions of all that is driving the universe. If you add up the, the extra gravity, which we call dark matter, with the extra pressure uh, on the, in the vacuum of space, which we call dark energy, it's 96% of everything we know. 96%. So, uh, you know, you could say we're just completely stupid about how the universe works, although the part we do know works really, really well. So that's a good thing. But the rest, if you, if you combine them, so there's our sort of mass, um, which is matter and energy, and then the, 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 the dark matter and the, and the dark energy, all of this is what's driving the universe. And the total sort of energy content of the universe is contained in the sum of those three. And we don't know what's causing the dark matter, and we don't know what's causing the dark energy. Okay. Um, our next question comes to us from listener Jerry. Jerry asks, 
How do we communicate science effectively, and what other science communicators do you admire other than the great Sagans or Attenboroughs? <laughs> uh, so in America, we, we do a few things very well, or at least we do a few things famously. One of them is well, they, we make jets. All right? Another one is it's our entertainment industry. You know, America entertains the world with our movies, our TV shows, our podcasts, our our broadcast content is an extraordinary gift to the world. Uh, any of us remember when you, you visit other countries when, when you were a kid, you put on the TV and there's your favorite TV show dubbed in the, lo in the local language. Whereas we don't have any of their TV shows dubbed in English, right? So there's clearly a one-way street going on here where we're entertaining the world. It would be irresponsible of anyone who is trying to teach an electorate uh, it would be irresponsible if they didn't exploit the power of media, entertainment media, in delivering the messages. So that's just an important fact. Okay, we have another question that comes to us uh, from listener Cody. Uh, Cody asks, what's your view on the connection between science and philosophy? There's a very long tradition of a marriage between science and philosophy that goes back forever. And... Well, if you look at what the philosopher does, the philosopher sort of assesses the landscape and then sits in a chair and thinks about it, deep thoughts, and then comes up with some new understanding, with some new outlook on that landscape. Philosophers at their best, that's what they do. The scientists, at, scientists at their best, will assess the landscape, propose an idea for how or why that landscape should be something else or something different or something more nuanced and then they'll devise an experiment to test the idea if the idea is not supported by experiment they discard the idea and then move on to a next one so the difference between the philosopher and the scientist is that the philosopher has no laboratory the philosopher has no telescope the philosopher has no particle accelerator and when physics, which I'm using sort of as a lead science in my answer to your question, when physics left the tabletop, which was basically 120 years ago, it left the tabletop and entered the realm of the quantum, which, which lives wholly outside of human experience and human common sense, and it looked at the large-scale structure of the universe. These two extremes fall so far away from your life experience that you can't sit on a couch and deduce the nature of the world from your own life experience because your life experience doesn't contain that which the experiments are demonstrating that the, how the actual world behaves. Now, of course, Einstein conjured up relativity, you know, not quite out of the blue, but there were some puzzling things that could not be understood. And he wrote a mathematical formalism for his theory, and then that came up with predictions. So then we tested the predictions, and his theories turned out to be true. So that's a good thing. Philosophers don't tend to bring math to the problem in the way actual scientists do. They're more sort of idea-driven than calculation-driven. Historically, that's how that's been the case. So uh, could a philosopher have come up with relativity? I suppose, but they didn't. A philosopher surely could have come up with evolution because the data were available, although Darwin had some extra data to really drive it home. But that one didn't require fancy equipment to have resolved. 
biology philosopher in principle could have come up with evolution by natural selection, but they didn't. It was a scientist. And so you look at progress in our understanding of the natural world in the last hundred years, the last 150 years, that progress has primarily been by the thinking of scientists, not of philosophers. Now you can say some scientists are thinking philosophically. I don't have a problem with that. But to say let us train people in philosophy so that they can become better scientists, I don't, I don't approve of that at all. That my read of how that has gone in the past century tells me that you are removing yourself from the frontier of cosmic discovery. Now, there's some branches of science that are brand new, like spanking brand new, like neuroscience, all right? That's only been on the map, you know, 10 years, tops. Before then, there are people, you know, poking around the brain, but it hadn't really taken off as its own, as its own field where you can get degrees in it. And that's early enough that, and plus the mind is so fascinating and so complex, and there's so many ways that you can think about how it works and how it doesn't work. It might benefit from the, the efforts of philosophers, and I know there are a bunch of sort of neuro-philosophers who are orbiting the field in an effort to contribute, and my hope is that they can and set things in directions that they need to be in the way early philosophers with regard to physics did for physicists. There are other branches of, you know, this philosophy of ethics, this religious philosophy. There are other kinds of philosophy out there. Uh, you were specifically, I presume, referring to philosophers in ways that they might contribute to the advancing frontier of science. And there are questions that philosophers ask that are just simply not useful to a scientist. Like, how do you really know the moon is there. You say, well, I have light, and they, well, that's just the light of the moon. You know, how about the moon itself? Well, I can measure. Well, that's just a measurement of the light of the moon. And, and you could down many pints of beer discussing those things. There's another, there's a whole, there, there's a chunk of philosophers who are asking the question, is the molecule H2O water? If you isolate a single H2O molecule, is that water? Or is water the macroscopic properties we give when you have countless numbers of these, and then you then it flows and it's liquidy and you know it's, it's not a liquid, it's not a solid, it's, it's not anything. It's just a molecule. There are philosophers arguing this, publishing papers on this, and the scientist just doesn't have time, the luxury of time. To, I call them beer conversations, conversations where you just sort of you question the, the existential conversations about knowledge and life and mind and matter, you know, okay, but I, it's not useful in the laboratory. Um, let me just follow up on that, too. I, I was thinking about ethics in terms of philosophy, and many times it comes up, so you're talking about, for instance, bringing back the woolly mammoth, or if you're talking about artificial intelligence and you're talking about ethics there, um, making certain that some sort of piece of technology isn't going to show up on the black market. Um, how much of that should a science be concerned with before or after the creation, the possibility? So I'm curious whether there is a negative argument to cloning a mammoth other than, no, it's extinct, so leave it extinct. You know, I mean, I don't, uh, someone's going to clone a mammoth. You know, you get the tissue out of the glacier as the glacier melts because all our glaciers are melting, so all kinds of fun uh, Ice Age creatures are going to be spilling out of that glacier, glacier probably a few cavemen while we're at it. And so, uh, yeah, we have the power to clone it. Somebody's going to clone it. Now, 
to ask what the ethics of that is, uh, I think there, there are more interesting ethical questions that are in front of us than whether we clone a mammoth, like, you know, cloning people or cloning or creating deadly viruses, you know, that could be used genocidally. I mean, so if you were to rank the topics <laughs> top to bottom, I, you know, what we do with the mammoth, I don't think people are going to protest. Uh, no, no I, what. I agree. I think that um, what I'm thinking about is how much of the scientists concern him or herself when they are going through the motions of what is possible, what can be created. Is this out of the realm of scientists, should they concentrate on what is possible and, uh, you know, does the uh, does society uh, create the ethics? Does, does Should there be any sort of overlapping there? Is that is that a job of the scientists to think about ethics? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think it's the job of the scientist as a citizen to think about it. You know, all citizens should be thinking about sort of the ethical conduct of the species. And fortunately, there's been some good investment in this, in this, along these lines, over the decades and over the centuries, so that there's actually been ethical shifts in our conduct over the years. All right? You know, there, there are books written on how to treat your slave ethically, and, and they don't address the question of why you would have a slave in the first place, right? So, so fortunately, there's a collective sense of what is good and what is right that is not anchored in some time past where the needs and the uh, conduct of what was considered reprehensible behavior, reprehensible behavior of the past, defended by whatever documents people had, or whatever their upbringing was, that, some, that, that does not carry into the future. I'm glad for that, right? I am free because of that. So, so that's fine. So I think the, the, the ethics can be an evolving conversation. I'm old enough to remember all this conversation about um, uh, in vitro fertilization, you know, the first test tube baby. Should we? Is it, you know, now it, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even make a news story if someone's born from a test tube. It's a non-story. And so, uh, but at the time, people said, oh, what's the ethics of this? And it's like, you know, chill out, you know, just... You try to think it through and, you know, look at the benefits and is there a downside that isn't religion? You know, religion is always telling you what you shouldn't do. And so if your only rebuttal is religion and you haven't really thought it through rationally, then you're missing some further conversations that should be had about what goes on. There's something else that's true that, that needs to be on the table that science fiction writers are awesome at depicting futures where science goes bad. And they create terrifying images of, of, of nuclear energy gone bad, you know, uh, just uh, cloning gone bad, um, uh, uh, viruses gone bad. And, and I'm happy to report that there has never been science gone bad by the efforts of a mad scientist who wants to take over the world. What we really have to watch out for are mad politicians, <laughs> right? Even the atom bomb, as, 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 yes, that was a whole set of complicit physicists who made that bomb. There's no doubt about it, but somebody paid their way. Somebody wrote their paycheck. Somebody funded that entire enterprise, and those are governments. 
those are Congress. That is an electorate. That is a president. That is a president's cabinet. Somebody else, by geopolitical forces, are deciding what they want to do with the science. And you will, you will never find scientists leading armies to invade other countries. It's just not what we do. So the, the, the ethical conduct is not so much of what a scientist does, but how does a society react to the discoveries of science? And that needs to be a, a and there's some overlap there, of course, between the two, but uh, ethics is a cultural problem, not simply that of what a scientist does. Almost every scientific discovery that we've ever found has extraordinary benefit to humankind. Extraordinary. Uh, the early days of, of, of nuclear physics, where we found radioactive uh, materials, and, and Marie Curie died of some kind of cancer, I think it was leukemia, surely as a result of her uh, playing around with radium, named because of its radioactive properties. Uh, there's an entire branch of medicine called radiology, which is the, the benefits of the investments of physicists who are trying to understand nature at, at its most, most basic level. So extraordinary benefits to society await us by every scientific discovery uh, that is to come. History tells us. Okay, well, that concludes the interview. I hope that you guys have enjoyed that. Again, thank you guys for giving us some great questions uh, for him to answer. And uh, I think we have time for a bit of mail here. Uh, let's see. Let's call the robot over. Okay, we heard from uh, listener Adam, and Adam writes in with an email titled Discovering Nutmeg in India, of course, uh, responding to our episode that we did on the science and history of nutmeg. Uh, he says, uh, hey, guys, I went on a tour of... Kerala's backwaters, basically huge waterways that people live alongside. And we went to a spice farm. Guess what was there? Nutmeg. My first thought was uh, your podcast about nutmeg last year. As the guide explained it, he went part by part. The red part inside is called mace in the local language and is extremely expensive. It's used in Indian dishes like uh, biryani. The best part, however, was when he described how you could get a a quote-unquote kick from eating too much nutmeg. I don't think the others understood, but thanks to your podcast, I knew exactly what he meant. Thanks again, and keep up the great work. Uh, Some pictures from the tour attached with the nutmeg at the bottom. And Adam, of course, is the the chief happiness officer who's been traveling around Mm -hmm. the world and and regularly writes into uh, our podcast and a few other House of Forks podcasts as well. And you can find uh, out more about what he's up to at happinessplunge.com. Uh, but, yeah, he sent us a number of these pictures. And, as always, it's just a fascinating glimpse into uh, his travels. Yeah, I love that, too, that the uh, tour guide had the little wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because <laughs> they're referring to the hallucinogenic properties of nutmeg, which we've probably said this a million times by now, not worth it. Uh, if anybody is sort of like, wow, that has hallucinatory properties, uh, that is not the stuff that anybody really wants to play with, I should say. We also heard uh, from a couple of uh, listeners out there who were uh, really taken by our our episodes that dealt with the shadow self as it relates to, uh, well, in, in, in one episode, uh, pro wrestling. In uh, the other episode, we talked about undercover cops who have a false identity that they're using and also actors uh, mm-hmm. in method or otherwise that, are, that have to 
put, cloak themselves in some level of fiction in order to do their thing. So uh, we heard from Josephine. Josephine writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I really enjoyed your last episode on the self and the roles we play. I really enjoy your podcast, your other podcast as well, of course, uh, and had a couple of things to contribute to the discussion. First, I went and listened to Thandie Newton's TED Talk, and at one point she mentions feeling that she didn't have a self since she was able to play other people so well. That reminded me of another actor who supposedly felt the same way, Peter Sellers. On the subject of playing characters, as an actor myself, I find it best to take some methody step to get uh, to the right place emotionally. But I find the strangest thing in my case is that though I always have my home self, whatever character I'm playing at the time usually rubs off on me a bit. It's sort of like who I normally am is being shown through the lens of another personality. I remember one character I played, Charles II of England's minister, Nell Gwynn, who was very happy and positive, had a particular effect on me, and my mom's always said that she can come back anytime she likes. Uh, can't wait to hear your next podcast. Sincerely, Josephine. Uh, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Huh, very interesting. Um, I, I can't help but think of personality as sort of like a prism, and it kind of depends on which direction the light is hitting it mm-hmm. in which you exhibit whatever feelings or personality at that time. Um, and we've talked about this before, about how it's related to consciousness and the unconscious. So, uh, again, it's it's very interesting to me to know that personality isn't something that is always a stable thing. We really have to work at it because it's part of that construction of our reality. We also heard from a listener by the name of Stephanie. Stephanie writes in and says, hello, Robert and Julie. Greetings from Toronto. Another one. And she's responding to the same episode. So there you go. I wonder if they know each other. Um, She says, I recently enjoyed listening to your episode on undercover actors in the shadow self. You uh, invited undercover agents and actors to write in and share their experiences of identity and role-playing. While I don't fit either of those descriptions, I thought you'd be interested in my perspective on the issue, since I suffer from what might be diagnosed uh, as a particularly acute form of imposter syndrome as a result of the way people respond to my outer self. Yes, it's much different from my inner self. I'm 30 with a Ph.D., and a tenure-track appointment at a major Canadian research university, but I look like I'm about 17, with wide blue eyes and a small stature at 5'2 and about 100 pounds. While the situation is well-situated for winning the biggest stuffed animal prize at the age-guessing <laughs> carnival booth and convincing a class of undergraduates that you're a child genius, a real-life Doogie Hauser, it often just makes me feel claustrophobic in my own body. The way I'm treated by others never seems to match my sense of self. Since starting as faculty at the university this past summer, the situation has become its most intense. Each new person I meet, student, staff, or fellow faculty member, treats me like a first-year student unless I correct them, which, for the most part, I've given up doing. After encountering this response multiple times a day from a range of people for the past several months, I'm beginning to feel like a young actor playing a grown-up role. I'm not sure if this is just a serious case of imposter syndrome or whether a more fundamental shift in my sense of self is happening. Your discussion made me wonder what I'd be like, who I'd be if the way others respond to me had always aligned with my age and general intelligence level. I've attached a picture of me on my honeymoon that illustrates this issue. More evidence available here. And then she sent us a Flickr page. She says, love the podcast, Stephanie. And I did see that picture. And, and yes, she she does come across as very young. And I have to say that I, I understand what she's saying because up to a certain age, I had the same problem. And it is a little bit odd because people don't expect you to sort of come out as as the person that you are. They think that, and not that I'm petite and I look like I'm 18, because certainly this, neither one of these is true. Uh, but people don't always expect, uh, you know, the certain personality to come out. Yeah, it is. It it was a really fascinating email to read. You know, to think about, you know, you know what what happens when who we feel we are in, inside is is out of step with our outer self, be it 
because of our physical appearance or because of the way we end up carrying ourselves in mm-hmm. the world, um, or even just how we are in first impressions versus how, how we really are. I mean, you, you do get into this complex question of who are we really, you know? Well, and especially if you look at those studies that say that, in particular, men who are taller tend to have more responsibilities put upon them and tend to get promoted more and so on and so forth. And that's a huge generalization. But mm-hmm. uh, actually, I should dig up that study so I can talk about it a little bit more in detail. But things like that, that you know, color people's perception and then the way that you get to operate in the world. Uh, so if, if you are that person or if you're not that person or if you're blonde or so on and so forth, you know, how, how does that affect the way that you accept certain responsibilities in the world or don't accept them? Yeah, I mean, I um, I'm six two or six three, depending on you know how I want to measure myself. I guess I guess I'm six three, but sometimes I hold it at six two because that feels like a good cutting off point. But um, you were just promoted to like president of no, the universe. No, no, well, I think now I grow my sideburns <laughs> long, and so that like you know people might see me and they're like, "Who's that tall guy? We should promote him to a level of incompetence." And then they see my sideburns <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, maybe not, maybe not." So you just cited the Peter Principle, did I? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, of course. The, yeah, yeah, the level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have been there to varying degrees in the past uh, before I wound up here and grew my sideburns out. So, yeah. You've been to the Peter Principle? Well, I have found myself being, when I was in newspapers, I found myself g- gaining more and more responsibilities mm-hmm. that I didn't really want or enjoy and or or even was necessarily that good at them. But Yeah. yeah. No, I think everybody has stepped into Peter's suit at one time yeah. or another. So my advice is grow your sideburns out, everyone. Ladies, too. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm with them mine. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have anything you would like to share with us, be it about this whole you know, conundrum we were just talking about related to self, about the shadow self, and if you have any feedback or anything to add regarding uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson interview, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, again, it was a tremendous treat to speak uh, with Dr. Tyson, uh, and I really enjoyed getting to share uh, your questions with him. So I really think from now on, whenever it's, it's possible, uh, I will reach out to people on Facebook uh, and let you guys contribute at least some of the questions for our, uh, our interviews. So if you want to do that, if you want to find us on Facebook and follow us so that you can be on top of that, um, again, Facebook, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We are also Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tumblr. And on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 